0: My name's Cutter Calloway, and I'm Assistant Professor of Theology and Culture at Fuller Theological Seminary. Welcome to Fuller Studio. Welcome to TV and Theology, an audio series in which we construct a theology of television to help viewers more fully engage with the power and meaning of TV. This season, I talk with filmmaker and Fuller alum Avril Speaks about the Netflix Marvel series, Luke Cage. Avril Speaks, it's been a while. We haven't seen each other in a bit and super delighted that you're here talking with me today. I know that you've had a lot of life changes recently in terms of your professional (laughs) career and things. Just fill me in, because I can't keep track of all of your movements. What are you doing these days? And why is it that you said yes when I invited you to come talk about Luke Cage?
1: Oh boy. So yeah, there has been a lot of change in the past few months. So I'm a Fuller alum. So I graduated in 2014 and I've been teaching, I've actually been a film professor for the last 10 years or Mm -hmm. so. And while at Fuller, I was teaching at two different universities. And over the summer, through a series of events, I kind of made a decision to kind of put teaching aside for hmm. a while. Actually, it was kind of an event that was kind of put on me oh. <laughs> because I didn't, I got tired of being an adjunct and hmm. you know, just wanted to work full time. And you know those jobs just weren't coming through. Yeah. And I started to say, you know what? Maybe I'm thinking about this wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm a filmmaker. I have a film degree. I have a theology degree, but I also have a film degree. And I'm in LA. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should look for jobs yeah. in the film yeah. industry. And literally two weeks after making that decision, I landed a job at BET, Black Entertainment Television, and was working there for the network as a coordinator. So I was there for a while and then not long after that, I got another offer to be an associate producer for a television show that was coming out. And so, I don't know, it's just been kind of one of those things where I think when I made that decision to kind of put teaching aside, I had to really sit and think about what are the things that are manifesting in my life right now? And, you know, I've been producing a film for like the past year. I became producer of a feature film that we're working with and, you know, trying to get funding for and everything. And it's been doing really well. Like we got into the Sundance financing intensive for women. So we went to New York and did that. And then we got into the LA Film Festival. They have a program called Fast Track where they select fellows that can come and pitch their project to 60 oh. different executives from different huh. studios and so we got selected for that and so I got a chance to you know kind of brush up on my pitching skills <laughs> and do that so it was like all these things were happening and so I think sometimes we do what's safe and it's yeah. like, because I've been teaching for 10 years, it's like, I got to find a job teaching. Yeah. And so I had kind of put all my eggs in that basket. And then finally I went, wait a second, like, <laughs> I've got all these other things happening. Maybe I should pursue that. Yeah. And so that's kind of how that happened. So that's where I am now is I'm an associate producer on a television show that's coming out.
0: It's interesting to me because you were teaching before you came to Fuller, right? Mm-hmm. At a historically black college. What was the college you were Howard at? Howard At Howard in the mm-hmm. film department. Yes. And then saw yourself principally you know my knowledge of you and your background as a filmmaker Mm -hmm. and then now we're here today on the heels of a historic election (laughs) which we couldn't get to (laughs) and in that make of it what you will but what has been made manifest surely is this sort of racial tension that always existed always has Mm -hmm, existed and mm -hmm. continues to both exist and persist and new and for me sort of really shockingly, profoundly sad sort of ways. Mm -hmm. Even I didn't realize and probably underestimated. But we're here then talking about a specific series, Luke Cage, which is explicitly about race, explicitly about the black experience in Mm -hmm. America. You taught at a historically black college. You are an African-American woman, you know, nose to the grindstone trying to get your films out there, pitching here and there. Yet now you're in the TV sphere. Is there some difference between especially whether it's just your experience as a woman as a woman of color and then as a storyteller that you see tv doing something different than film is like a filmmaker are they Mm. just different or can you get at race and things going on in tv in a unique way
1: that's a great question yeah you know what's interesting is you know one of the reasons why i made the leap career-wise was because i've been so focused on film for so long But the reality of it is that I'm a lot more excited about television right now than I am about movies. And I mean, movies are great. There's some really great stuff that's out right now or that, you know, that's coming out. But I'm so excited about television. And the reason for that is because I feel like television is really taking a lot of risks and right. a lot of leaps when it comes to race, when it comes to representation. I still wish they were doing more. I mean, there's still a long way to go. But And actually, I've been having this conversation with people. And, you know, Some people say it's the golden age of television, yeah. right? And there's been so many... TV shows that have almost been like novels, you know, that have been really great. But even in terms of content of Black people and of African-Americans and what that experience is like, it's a golden age for that as well. Because not only is it we have a number of shows that feature African-American cast, but there's a variety of types of shows. You take a show like Queen Sugar that's Mm -hmm. on OWN. That's all about a family who's grieving a loss. Mm -hmm. And then you have a show like Blackish, That's a comedy about a family. But then you have Atlanta. I love that show. It's this really quirky kind of comedy that, you know, sometimes I watch that show and I'm like, how is this show allowed to be on the air? (laughs) Like, I don't Who are the executives at FX? They had to just been like, just do what you're going to do because I don't don't understand what you're doing, but just do it. I feel like that show is so innovative and a original. I mean, we've had times before where I feel like we've had black shows. So like in the 70s, Norman Lear was doing all the good times and the Jeffersons and, you know, we had things like that. And then in the 80s, we had the Cosby show. In the 90s, there was like this explosion. You have like Cosby show, you have Living Single, there's Martin, there's Living Living Color. Yeah. So there was, there were, there were a lot of shows in the 90s. And then in the 2000s, it just kind of Went silent, and there wasn't really a lot of content for black shows. And now we're experiencing this time, you know. And it's funny, I I listened to this writer once, and, you know, (laughs) she's been in the business for a long time, and she talks about how when she first came out here to Hollywood, they said, you have to write comedy because that's where all the black writers are. And she's like, yeah. well, I don't write comedy. Yeah. So, I, you know, what am I supposed to do? And they're like, it doesn't matter. Just go write comedy because that's where all the black people are. That's where all huh. the black shows are. And if you think about it, yeah. all those shows that I just named, they're all comedies. And huh. so she's like, yeah, now there's dramas, there's comedies, there's all this stuff. And she's like, I don't know what to do. It's like, huh. we better hurry up and get this huh. in because huh. we don't know how long it's gonna last. You know what I mean? It's kind of like this fear, like was it's gonna be taken name, I mean, here, Was this woman's name Shonda But yeah, I mean, like you, Shonda Rhimes has really paved the way in that arena. So I think it's a good time. I think television is being Hmm. very bold in terms of its handling of race and looking at race through many different arenas. Not to kind of get on a tangent, but one of my, I don't want to say pet peeves or Maybe it's a frustration. My observation about film, Mm -hmm. when it comes to race, and especially when it comes to African Americans, is that we're kind of in this zone of slave movies, and it's like everything is about the slave narrative, and we need that story, and we've had some great stories and great films that have come out about that. But where are the other stories? I saw Moonlight a couple of weeks ago, Uh, and fantastic film. Mm -hmm. Just so great. And, you know, there's so many things I loved about the film, but one of the things that I loved was the fact that you have this world. It's like Black people in Miami. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's like, yes, like, We exist. You yeah. know, we exist Ooh. in Miami. And mm-hmm. the, the scene where, I don't mean, I don't want to give the movie away for anyone who hasn't seen it, but there's this one scene where this guy who plays a drug dealer, who mm. kind of takes this kid up under his, under his wing. Under his wing yeah. And there's this one scene where they go to the beach mm. and he tells the kid, he's like, yeah, I'm from Cuba. And he talks about being this Afro-Cuban man in Miami and he takes him out. To swim, and he kind of teaches him how to swim, mm. and just that that scene alone is yeah. just so beautiful because, mm. like, we never get to see something that's so ordinary. We often don't get to see that, and even just to see an Afro-Cuban neighborhood, like an African Americans that have this infusion of Cuban culture, yeah. it was really refreshing to see. Mm. But how often do we get to see that? And that's you know, an independent film. In mainstream film, we get Twelve Years a Slave. It's the and slave it, narrative. It's
0: interesting because it, I mean, part of what you're getting at is there's more opportunities for more creators to make stuff. So that's arising in part because of the flourishing of television and film, just because of budgets. And there's a whole host of things that inhibit a lot of people from even making something, much less getting it seen Mm -hmm. or distributed. Mm -hmm. Then on top of it, it's that tendency in my sort of observation is that whether it's a slave film or another film about the black experience or by a black filmmaker, because it's a film, you have to wrap it up in... Ninety minutes. It's its own self-contained narrative, yeah. and so even if it's kind of open-ended and ambiguous, or it's really tight and has like a message, like if it's a message film. Mm-hmm. So that's Nate Parker's, you know, <laughs> Birth right. of a Nation. That's that's a message. Right. And so you're sort of inhibited. Whereas once you spin out into sort of serialized or episodic stuff, by its very nature, it seems like you can get it sort of that texture and richness that yes. that you can't get in a movie. And on top of it, when you are able to distribute it. Through new technology to basically everybody. Yes. You don't have to have an independent theater in your town to go see. Right. Which, because like, is Moonlight even broadly distributed right now? It,
1: I don't think so. Yeah. I so I mean, it's... even
0: that. I mean, like this yeah. great, you know, film may win some Oscars, whatever, and. Mm-hmm a huge chunk of America can't yeah. even see it.
1: Well, that's what's so great about, and again, like I said, I'm so excited about television right yeah. now is because like you like you said, that access piece. I went to see Ava DuVernay's documentary, The 13th, oh, uh-huh, uh-huh. and I went to see it in a theater, and mm-hmm. she, you know, she did a Q and A, and there was a woman in the audience who at the end of the film, she said, I work with women who have just come out of the prison system, and I mm. work with these women to get them job training and stuff like that. And she said, I feel hopeless. Like, I mm. like you know, what do I do? And Ava DuVernay's response was the fact that we all have to take part. But one thing she said, there's no movie theater in Compton. Mm-hmm. So her film, The 13th, mm-hmm. is on Netflix. Yeah. Like, it just so happened that she they yeah. did that one screening, you know, in Santa Monica. It wasn't yeah. like it was a widely distributed film. It was just that one screening. But she said, there's no movie theater mm-hmm. in Compton. Mm-hmm. And here you have a film that is about Black people, yeah. and Black people in certain neighborhoods can't, <laughs> can't even access it. it. Yeah. But through a platform Mm -hmm. like Netflix, I mean, you know, and then you get into a whole other thing of access and do people have internet, but through a platform like Netflix, more people can see it, anybody can see it. So it's accessible. And like you said, the story can build over time and there's different ways, there's platforms to engage Hmm. with it, to speak of that same movie, I think it's this weekend or next weekend, Ava's doing a Facebook live session oh, huh. about the film. And then uh, she's going to do like a QA and a with Common and with some people. Huh. So they're going to do that via Facebook. Yeah. And then there's going to be like a, a live tweet or whatever. So you can watch the film uh, on Netflix and be able to tweet about yeah. it and Facebook about it the same time. So it opens up so yeah. many doors on how we can connect with each other around content, around good content and have really important conversations.
0: Speaking of Netflix, and sort of how it's upending the industry. So Luke Cage aired on Netflix, which means every episode of this first season is available right away. Mm -hmm. And so it raises that question of, you have options now of how you watch it. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you watch it live with others? Do you binge it as Mm -hmm. part of the new normal or the new emerging landscape of media? But these first two episodes that we have of the series basically throw us in the deep end. It's basically like just throwing you into Compton. It's Harlem, it's Mm -hmm. not, but Mm -hmm. you drop yourself in there and kind of says, well, sink or swim, right? Mm -hmm. Here you go, (laughs) This, this is what it's like. And it breaks Netflix the day that it airs, because so many people want to watch it, which I find interesting. And maybe just because of what it is, what it's about, the character, all these issues that you're sort of bringing up. And yet, because of this sort of drop in the deep end of the black experience in a black community, you get all this ridiculous pushback from white audiences Mm -hmm. saying, where are all the white people, right? (laughs) Like I thought this was, this is a racist show because there's no white (laughs) people, which is to me, this really telling response to the current sort of situation we find ourselves in. Like Mm -hmm. that is a response and how tone deaf that is when what must it be like to be a person of color to watch any of the rest of TV, right? right? Like historically or even now. Mm -hmm. But I thought it'd be interesting to hear you kind of riff on, you know, speaking of what it's like to grow up in Compton or in Harlem or whatever, any of these like areas that have a large number of African-American people and the African-American culture is really thriving there. Or some might say dying. You know, that's sort of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that Luke Cage starts, these first two episodes, it starts in a barbershop. And the second episode ends with the barbershop being, you know, riddled with bullets and pops, the guy that is the main person there being killed. My sense is that a lot of white viewers wouldn't catch the significance of that. What's your sort of experience or sort of vision? What's your imagination of the Mm barbershop in terms of a community and a culture of how people are interacting?
1: I mean... I'm not a male, so I don't uh, that, yeah. <laughs> I don't go to the barbershop as often, but the barbershop is known as yeah. being, I mean, the the barbershop, the beauty supplies, the beauty shop, it's the same thing with black women mm. and hair. Like we spend all day in the beauty <laughs> shop and we talk about everything in the beauty uh. shop. You talk about television shows, you talk about politics, you talk about your family. <laughs> I mean, you talk mm-hmm. about everything in the beauty shop and it's the same way with the barbershop as well. It's such a mainstay mm of the Black community, I think. It's one of those gathering places, mm-hmm. just like the church, just like yeah. the community center. Like It's just the place you go. Like I said, you know that you're gonna be there for a while. You're stationary, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you're not going anywhere. Like you're not getting up. You know, for men to sit in a barbershop in a chair, you're getting your hair cut, you're not moving anywhere. So it's kind of like we are, trapped is a negative word, but we're enclosed in this yeah. space for this period of time. Mm-hmm. And it's like your barber, your beautician becomes kind of like your unofficial confidant that you may or may not call them your best friend, but you know that you have this kind of standing appointment that every week or every Mm. two weeks or whatever, you know that you're gonna come into this space That's a safe space. And there's people from all different opinions, all walks of life Mm -hmm. that come in, that converge in the Mm barbershop. So you're always going to have that guy who is like, that's crazy. I don't agree with that. There's always going to be someone in there that completely disagrees with what you say. And then, you know, people give him a hard time, you know, but it's all in fun. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those places where people are allowed to be themselves and to say what they want to say. And it's okay. It's okay for you to be who you are. Like I said, it's safe. It's a safe space. I feel like the barbershop and the beauty shop are safe spaces for us to be who we are and to have fun with it. You know, you never go into a barbershop or a beauty shop and see people upset. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like you never see people moping around or like yeah. getting in each other's face about what somebody said. It's like, well, okay. That's, Unless you threaten your their sports opinion. team. Unless I you mean, threaten, your, uh, yeah. threaten their sports team.
0: Yeah. It's, it's pretty fascinating to think about how when that space, that safe space then comes under threat. And at least in this series, like the whole thing is set up by, we had this robust, vibrant, place where you could disagree, you could dialogue, you could trust one another, even if you didn't always see it eye to eye. And then it's interesting that one of the first things that happens plot wise is it's just completely destroyed yeah. and you lose not just the barbershop, but the, the barber, the guy that sort right. of is the figurehead of it all. And then it's not just a barbershop, but it's a barbershop set in Harlem right. as the backdrop for the whole thing. Yeah. And there's all these conversations about what is Harlem, whose is Harlem, You know, mm-hmm. who, who does it belong to, that sort of thing. But it strikes me that it definitely gets at this sense that this has all, the fabric of this community is now under threat by violence. Mm-hmm. I mean, like a, it's violently being attacked. So it's not just... We're experiencing some violence, but it's the very core of who we are and how we operate as a community. It has bullet holes in it, essentially. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know, you're from the East Coast. Does Harlem have a sort of resonance for you? Is I mean, how does that, as a backdrop to the series, what does it yeah. do for us in terms of understanding the show?
1: Well, yeah, I'm I'm from the East Coast. I grew up in New Jersey and New York, Queens, New York, not Harlem. But... <laughs>
0: So are there like turf wars there? I mean, are you are you like is from Queens? You have some perspective on Harlem that's different. I don't know. Not being from New York, I don't know.
1: Well, yeah, there's this, the, the you know, there's Bronx, yeah, yeah, Bronx versus Queens and and Harlem and all of that. I was young at the time that I had my ties to Queens. I never really understood like the turf wars between the different places. It was like oh, it's, yeah. it's New York to me. For me, Harlem has always been like this culturally magical place, <laughs> like. <laughs> I remember when I was in high school, we used to go to Harlem. We would visit the Schoenberg Museum. Oh, uh-huh. And it was like, yes, we're gonna go to Harlem. We're gonna spend the day in Harlem. We go to the Schoenberg. And you know, I remember this bookstore that was you know, in the area and it just had all of these black books. I just mm. remember there being all these books that I had never heard of before, that I had never mm. been introduced to before. That's always what I associate mm. Harlem with, yeah. is kind of being that place mm. where black culture is celebrated. Even the street names, you know, mm. Malcolm X Boulevard, mm-hmm. and I was like, wow, you know, mm. and the Apollo. Like I remember yeah. going to a few concerts at the yeah. Apollo Theater. So I have these memories of that's walking around. That's why all uh, black
0: filmmakers or TV makers have to go into comedy, because they, <laughs> everyone just sees the Apollo. You right, know? Like, right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, I always remember Harlem being that kind of like culturally rich, mm. And then if you think about the history of Harlem and the Harlem Renaissance, and as an artist, it's a romantic time that I always think about. You know, there's poets and there's writers who are writing out of their experience Mm -hmm. and living in that experience. And so I think with this series, centering it in Harlem is really interesting. You talked about the barbershop, for example. It's interesting that this series begins with the barbershop getting Mm -hmm. destroyed, getting shot up. And Luke's, whole mission Mm -hmm. is to save Harlem. And you know, one of the things I kept thinking about throughout the course of the series is when you visit Harlem now, it's a very different Harlem Mm -hmm. than what it was. Even from what I remember as a teenager, it's a very different Harlem. I even wonder when Luke Cage says I have to save Harlem, Mm -hmm. it's almost like a double, it's a play on words, because does that Harlem still exist? Like I said, for me, it was like this culturally magical place. Like I was like, Mm -hmm. I can go to Harlem and be me and be Black and know who I am as a Black person in mm. Harlem, is Harlem still that, is the question. So I think there's some significance mm. there. But within the world of the show, it's a superhero. Yeah. It's a Marvel universe. Yeah. And so it's this insular yeah. world. Yeah. You don't get to see a whole mm. lot of Harlem that exists outside of this area that exists around the barbershop. I mean, you do, but it's very contained, which I think is interesting, also. Yeah. Yeah. That's
0: a really interesting insight of when he's going to save it. I don't want to use taglines that are going to be under and overused, but make Harlem great again. The irony of that is, but who's Harlem, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. is it the idealized Harlem in our imagination? Is it the Gentrified Harlem? Mm-hmm. Probably not. Right. So really, Harlem stands for or symbolizes in some sense black culture and cultural history in mm-hmm. some way, of like you said, like I go here and I feel I belong here. Mm-hmm. So there's more a belongingness or a place, a sense of place in the barbershop, whatever, that 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 is the thing that's under threat that he's tasked with saving. Mm-hmm. And it would be a mistake maybe to say he's just trying to keep people from being violent. And that's what I understand of New York more broadly is that it's being so gentrified and so expensive that all the cultural creators, all the people, the diversity in terms of socioeconomics is just mm-hmm. evaporating. Mm-hmm. So could Harlem really be a vision of what everybody in the show has in mind or is it getting at something larger there? Mm-hmm. So we will uh, continue to uh, talk about all these things, specifically the superhero and what a black Harlem superhero needs to be, should be, can be. Mm-hmm. and even more than that as we progress. But I'm super happy that you're here and talking with me and we will start back up with our next episode. Awesome. You've been listening to a production of Fuller Studio. Fuller Studio provides articles, podcasts, videos, and other resources for a deeply formed spiritual life. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit us at fuller.edu slash studio.